With the 2023 NFL Draft only a little over a week away, few know what to expect from the teams in the top five, including the Seattle Seahawks. Could one of the teams in front of them throw a curveball for the entire rest of the top five? We'll be breaking it all down on our Wednesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. You are Locked on Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings 12, this is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Glad to be joined for our Wednesday episode, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. We are only eight days away from the 2023 NFL Draft. we got a special treat coming up for our valued listeners, all of you that make Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Got a chance for you to get some extra intel leading up to next week's Big draft with the Seahawks having four selections in the first 52, including the number five overall pick. We're going to be looking at the worst value picks in the John Schneider area. You got to be negative sometimes. So we're going to be looking at the worst value picks dating back to 2010 from this regime. And we're going to continue our defensive end edge discussion. Some of the bigger body prospects that could maybe play three tech, five tech, maybe even off the ball a little bit as an outside linebacker. We're going to be looking at some of those bigger prospects from this year's class. Jam-packed episode coming your way. Before we get to our main story here, as I mentioned a few moments ago, we have a contest that is going on on social media right now. We are teaming up with our lads, our good buddies over there, have an incredible depth chart that they update throughout the season. They also have a really good draft guide, and we actually have five of them to give away to our valued listeners. All you got to do is visit my Twitter account at Corbin Smith NFL, or you can visit us on YouTube and you can submit your four picks. You've got four selections 5, 20, 37, and 52. You can only pick the players that are available in each one of those draft picks. So you get to build your draft based on the players that are available for each selection. So you can't pick Anthony Richardson, 37th overall. Sorry, 12s. But you need to pick the players that are in the column with the draft pick. Send us your list of four picks and tell us why you like your draft class. We'll be picking out five different ones that we'll be handing out our lads draft guides to on our Friday episode. So get those in quick. Now for your lead story here on our Wednesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. Up to this point, the four teams in front of the Seattle Seahawks in the 2023 NFL draft, all of them except the Arizona Cardinals have been linked to quarterbacks, basically this entire pre-draft process. And yet, as we kind of delved in a little bit yesterday, this is smokescreen season, but it's also the time of year where sometimes leaks happen that do give some foreshadowing for what a team is going to do. And it just so happens that there continues to be growing speculation. The Houston Texans might not take a quarterback at number two after all. They've got a head coach in D'Amico Ryans, who was a defensive player, defensive coordinator for the 49ers. He might be enamored by a player like Will Anderson Jr. to the point where he says, you know what? We're going to do what San Francisco's done. We're not going to invest here early to quarterback. Let's get our defense balked up. And that does create an interesting conversation for teams like the Seahawks that are a few picks behind them because, as Schneider said today, this feels like a lot less predictable draft than it was even a year ago leading up to it. Yeah, that, that's just the power of quarterbacks. 
Uh, you know, when you have some really intriguing quarterback talent out there, then, uh, you know, some teams are going to view these guys as pro ready. Some teams are going to view them as not. Um, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, you can see the exact quote that John Schneider said. For those of you who are not, I'll just read it real quick. Uh, again, this is John Schneider's quote when talking about whether or not that this year's draft where Seattle, of course, has number five overall selection is more predictable with Seattle being at number five than last year when Seattle had number nine overall selection. And his comments were, quote, I would say yes. Compared to last year, I would say yes. Besides that, I don't really know. I think there's just a ton of variables up there, a lot of different scenarios, a lot of different ways that we can go. Again, saying that this is a more difficult uh, top five, top 10 to predict than a year ago. And again, I think that the biggest reason for that, Corbin, is just the fact that we have four, perhaps even five quarterbacks quarterbacks that, that could wind up jumping into the first round. There was an awful lot of talk, you know, about some of the quarterbacks a year ago, but there wasn't this much buzz. And, and so that has just absolutely made this, uh, you know, very much a wild card scenario. And, and again, I don't think this is something that the Seahawks are panicking about. I think this is something that they are relishing in. I think they are hoping to drive up that much more value for their number five overall selection because they may very well wind up just staying there at number five and making that selection. But this also, again, creates a great deal of interest in that pick, and they might be able to trade back if that's what they want to do and still be able to get a really good football player and acquire more picks. That's one of the things I want to make sure that we talk about a little bit in this opening segment is just some of the other comments that, that John Schneider and Pete Carroll made during their opening, uh, their, their press conference today. And and the fact something that we talked about in yesterday's uh, show to start off the, the program was the fact that Seattle only has 52 players on the roster. To me, that's yep. interesting as well. So again, I think that Seattle's versatility at number five overall, and again the quarterbacks, I think make this one heck of a wild card. And people who like the draft, like uh, a little bit of intrigue, a little bit of mystery, then I really think that this upcoming week is going to be fascinating. Yeah, last year it felt like we had a pretty good bearing which players were going to be going in the first three or four spots, maybe a week and a half, two weeks before the draft. This year, aside from pick number one, it looks pretty obvious to me at this point the Carolina Panthers are going to be taking Bryce Young. And the fact that Young stopped his top 30 visits, it seems like he knows he is going to be the guy there at number one overall to bring in a new franchise quarterback for the Panthers. But after that point, again, the Texans, I've, I've had plenty of people on social media mentioning there's no way they're not picking a quarterback. Absolutely there is. And as I mentioned, it's because of who they just hired as their head coach. D'Amico Ryan is coming from San Francisco. He just watched him get to the NFC title game with Brock Purdy as the quarterback in large part because – they had weapons around him on offense, and they had the number one defense in football. He wants to build a juggernaut on that side of the football, and you've got a chance to get a player like Will Anderson or maybe Jalen Carter. I mean, I would not be stunned if Jalen Carter ended up getting picked there. I know it has not been mentioned, but when he is on, when his head's on straight, he's as talented as any player in this class, and that guy can be the type of disruptive game wrecker that can completely transform a defense. You could say that about Will Anderson potentially too, though. So I would not be surprised if they go that route. And in fact, I'm going to say this right now, Rob, when you look at the draft order, if the Houston Texans decide, you know what, we are going to throw this curveball. I know CJ Stroud is there. We need a quarterback, but not bad enough that we're going to force the issue. We want Will Anderson at this selection, or we want uh, Jalen Carter at this selection, or maybe they love Tyree Wilson, keep him in Texas. That's a possibility from a scheme standpoint. 
But if the Texans do that, really the Cardinals become the wild card here. If Arizona sits pat, I would expect they're going to pick whoever the next best defender is that's there. That all but guarantees that the Seahawks are going to have a crack at drafting either Anthony Richardson or C.J. Stroud at number five overall. And maybe most importantly, because of that fact, they only have 52 players in the roster. And if they drop a few picks, it's a little bit cheaper for them. You can have a King's ransom coming back to you if C.J. Stroud or Anthony Rich, especially Stroud, because he's the more polished player coming into the draft. He's pro-ready. If he's there at number five, the Seahawks might be able to get a future first-round pick and several draft picks to add on this year. So John Schneider might end up getting 12 or 14 selections in this draft, and they're able to fill out their roster. And if you can get a bunch of day-two picks with a draft that's got good depth in number of positions, it would make a lot of sense. So I actually think if I'm John Schneider, I'm pulling for this because it means I'm either getting my future franchise quarterback or I'm mortgaging that guy off to get a boatload of draft picks, potentially even a first-rounder next year. Yeah, I think, as you said, if you're John Schneider, if I'm John Schneider, you're hoping for some chaos at the top of the draft just to create that much more interest. Because, again, just the the, the salary cap reality of where the Seahawks are, they, they have to get a number of players either in this draft or or pretty cheap veterans. And so um, I do think that that is one of the things that they're hoping for is to be able to maybe trade down at some point, whether it be number five, number 20, uh, you know, at the top of the second round, 37. But but, but be able to uh, create some more draft picks for yourself. I wouldn't be surprised at all if this winds up being the draft that the Seahawks use the more more selections than any other draft class and uh, you know in, in John Schneider and Pete Carroll's history together here in, in Seattle for exactly those types of reasons. Uh, at the same time, you have to be careful because there are some really good football players at number five overall, and you don't want to get too cute and, and, and trade away from from the opportunity to get real difference makers. We, we've talked about some of those difference makers before Jalen Carter could be that guy. Anthony Richardson could be that guy. Um, you know, if this draft winds up kind of going as, as we are slotting here, I do think that Houston, as you mentioned, D'Amico Ryans is the head coach of the Houston Texans. This is a defensive minded guy. This is a former Alabama guy. I can absolutely to me, in, you know, in my opinion, the two best players are the two Alabama players, you know, Will Anderson, of course, on the defensive side of the ball and Bryce Young, as you said, we expect him to go number one. I, I do expect Houston to strongly consider uh, Will Anderson or two. And if that's not the case, then again, the Arizona Cardinals at number three. And the Indianapolis Colts, Corbin, to me, Seattle's in a little bit of the catbird seat because I think that the Colts are in a less enviable position. It's pretty obvious that the Colts need help at quarterback. And so the Cardinals being one pick ahead of them. If, if anybody can figure out with the Indianapolis Colts, who their quarterback is that they really like at number four, then yeah, you, the, the Arizona Cardinals are hoping to figure that out. So they're basically just throw, floating out every single possible scenario to try to kind of create a little bit of, of trade interest there. And so that to me is really where this draft is going to hinge because the Texans, if they go with CJ Stroud, who I don't know is necessarily the greatest of fits for Seattle at number four, five if they go with will anderson i think we see how would jump at if he was available still that's number two is critical but obviously once that happens then, then arizona at number three they're gonna make whatever decision they are again i think the colts are are basically focusing on a quarterback as you mentioned before 
Seattle is going to have an awful lot of opportunities at number five. I, I think that I'm convinced they're going to get a superstar at number five, or they're going to be able to trade out either way. I think that it screams possibility of going back to the playoffs a year from now for the Seahawks. Yeah, they got to hit on that pick, whether it's five, seven, 10, 12, whatever it ends up being. They need to get a quality player that can come in and contribute right away. You know, that's what John Schneider and Pete Carroll are aiming to do. If the right guy's there at five, they'll make that pick. If they are getting a bunch of really good offers to trade down, there's quarterbacks on the board, or maybe they want that quarterback. And again, that's why John Schneider said what he did today. The predictability of this draft, it's a lot different than it was a year ago. It's a lot tougher to peg what is going to happen in this first 10 picks or so of the upcoming NFL draft. Speaking of the draft, we're going to be looking at John Schneider's worst value picks coming up next year on Way Back Wednesday. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. This episode is brought your way by FanDuel. The NBA playoffs are almost here, and now is the perfect time to download FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook, because new customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's bonus bets back if your first bet doesn't win. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Then you can bet on everything, from the money line to points scored to three-pointers drained. I'm a huge fan of player prop parlays. And you can make bets such as Max Struess going for 20 or more points for the Heat at plus 500. Plus, FanDuel even lets you combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payout with a same-game parlay. So don't miss your chance to get your no-sweat first bet up to $1,000 in bonus bets when you go to FanDuel.com slash locked on. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on to learn more. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. You're listening to the Wednesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there, whether you're listening in nearby Redmond or across the country in Maine. We greatly appreciate you making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. For our everydayers out there, make sure to listen into tomorrow's show. We're going to be diving into a bunch of comments from John Schneider and Pete Carroll at their pre-draft press conference today, including discussing the possibility of trading down some interesting comments from John Schneider. You won't want to miss it. And make sure to find our new NFL Draft newsletter here on Locked On. Luke Inman's doing a fantastic job putting that together. You can find that free resource at LockedOnPodcast.com slash newsletters to sign up for your free NFL Draft newsletter. All right. We yesterday had Throwback Tuesday. Today, we're going way back Wednesday, looking back to 2010. And yesterday was all about positivity. And unfortunately, today, we're going to have to go to the under end of the spectrum. John Schneider has been a great general manager for a long time. But like every GM out there, there have been some misfires in the NFL draft. And so, Rob, you and I are going to be dishing out our picks for the top five, or I guess we should say the worst five value picks in the John Schneider, Pete Carroll era. And I'm going to give you the mic first here. And I'm actually a little bit surprised. I looked at our list before we get started. And you went with a player who's on my list, but he's a little further down as your number one worst value pick. Yeah, that's the thing is I think everybody's going to jump in on the Malik McDowell train. And and I understand that. But uh, to me, with Malik McDowell and the success that he had this past season, when he did come back very successfully, the Cleveland Browns wound up starting more games this past season for the Cleveland Browns in one season than my least favorite selection for the Seahawks, least uh, economic uh, decision for the Seahawks, and that being Kristen Michael, who was Seattle's top 
selection in the 2013 draft, uh, the year after their unbelievable draft class of 2012, of course, with the Bruce Irvins, the Bobby Wagners, the Russell Wilsons, you know, Seattle had really established itself as a, as a true force. Um, and then they come back and they have the, a 2013 draft that was in so many different ways forgettable and Kristen Michael being a big part of that. As I mentioned before, um, again, Malik McDowell wound up starting more games this past season than Kristen Michael did in his entire NFL career. This is a talented player, and that's part of the reason why it was such a frustrating selection because it just felt like – and just watching the way he was on tape, watching some of the – the ways in which he carried himself off the field. It, it just never felt like he was a player that really was 100% fully committed to maximizing his talent. He had four different NFL teams that gave him an opportunity after Seattle, but you know he, he wound up running for over 100 yards one time. Um, now, that was a memorable performance. It was against the 49ers in, the, in a game that the Seahawks won. So, hey, give him some credit there. But considering the fact that this was a you know top 64 selection, a guy that had as much talent as Kristen Michael had, but I just never believed that he was the competitor. The, you mentioned a moment ago that we're going to kind of talk about some maybe depressing things, maybe some of Seattle's misses. I think it's important to review these things you know basically here a, a week before the seahawks are going to prepare for the 2023 draft where perhaps they're considering some other players that maybe don't have champion in their heart yeah i understand your arguments with mcdowell because two years ago in cleveland i think last year he was actually out of the league because he got arrested and was involved with some stuff that's been the other issue for him it hasn't just been an atv accident he's had some other off-field issues but the fact that he never played in a single practice beyond OTAs for the Seahawks and just the way that things unfolded, the fact they traded down three times and then they had to go out and get Sheldon Richardson for a second round pick. And then he ended up being a one year rental. I mean, it just was one of those draft picks that just kept compounding itself. And for that reason, I've got to still keep him at number one. I've got LJ Collier at number two and those watching on YouTube, you can see the picture. This picture sums up LJ Collier's career in Seattle. He had one <laughs> year that he was an okay starter in 2020, but trying to go after Lamar Jackson, and Lamar Jackson has done this to some really good football players, so this isn't picking on Collier too much, but you can see him laying on the ground after he got completely juked out. That kind of sums up the way things went for LJ Collier here in his four years in Seattle. The last two years, he was a healthy scratch 10 plus times as a former first round pick. That tells you all that you need to know. There were some flashes in his second season, but never was able to build off of that. Ended up falling out of favor into the doghouse, wasn't in the rotation. And he was picked 29th overall when a few picks earlier before they traded down, they had a chance to get Montez Sweat, who has had a pretty darn good career to this point for Washington. And so there's a lot of things you can look back at that pick and say, that didn't necessarily work out. But to me, those two and then Christian Michael is number three on my list because of the underwhelming production as a top pick for them, a player that had really high expectations. He was supposed to be beast modes, heir apparent. Those did not work out. So to me, those three, you can interchange those any way you want. But to me, those are the three worst picks for John Schneider. 
because of all things considered, especially with McDowell, the ripple effects, the dominoes that happened because of that, that ended up setting the organization back even further. And for my last two, I've got Marquise Blair in 2019. That draft, other than DK Metcalf and Cody Barton, not looking too hot these days with those two top picks not panning out. Blair just couldn't stay healthy. And I decided to put Chris Harper and Gary Jennings Jr. I've talked about him several times in the show. In fact, I believe it was last week I was just saying John Schneider draft advice. Don't pick a wide receiver in the fourth round. It has been a debacle every single time that he has picked one. And I know these picks that are in the hundreds don't have a high hit rate, but still there's been three different guys picked in the fourth round. Chris Durham being another one that were supposed to be really solid contributors. And I think they combined for three catches between three of them in regular season games. So in terms of value and just not panning out, completely burning draft picks unfortunately those are ones that jump out to me and for my honorable mention on this category James Carpenter as a first round pick started in a Super Bowl that's why I don't have him on this list but overall it was not a great run for him on a four-year contract a bunch of injuries conditioning issues so he is a dishonorable mention yeah and I think that that's very fair um because you're looking at strictly what they did in Seattle and again as I mentioned before with Malik McDowell and what he was able to do in Cleveland uh James Carpenter what he has been able to do as a starter elsewhere Chicago uh among other places I, I think that that's that's you know to me is something that that I take into account it's one of the reasons why I got Lano Hill uh you know when Seattle dropped him it was Delano Hill from uh, the safety from Michigan um you mentioned previously the, the just kind of the expectations that were there for Kristen Michael. He was supposed to be the heir apparent to Beast Mode. Well, the same thing, Leno Hill was supposed to be uh, the, the second coming of Cam Chancellor. And of course, with zero career interceptions, zero career force fumbles, zero career sacks, he certainly was not that. He was a huge disappointment. And in a top 100 selection, which is where I tried to, to kind of focus in on my picks, Marquise Blair being another one of them, the, the fact that there was as many good safeties in that class is to me, and again, another one of the disturbing things um and then my honorable mention would be d eskridge um you know d eskridge needs to get it going now uh i mean we're, we're talking about a guy who still has one touchdown to his nfl career at this point i mean that's pretty disturbing stuff so um i i do think that there are i would agree with you what you said before christian michael malik mcdowell lj call you mix them up however you want those are clearly some disappointing players uh for seattle to me the scariest thing about that fact is that two of the three are defensive Lyman, the other ones are running back, arguably the two biggest areas or three biggest areas of concern for the Seahawks entering this upcoming draft class. So to me, again, I think that this was a, a really smart way of approaching the draft because we I think we do need to kind of talk about and revisit some of the mistakes that Seattle has made and hopefully we'll be able to avoid in this draft class. Yeah, you don't want this to be a situation where you end up duplicating mistakes that you have made. And I guess the other thing that jumped out to me is most of our list had players that have been drafted exclusively in the last four or five years, too. And so it has been more of a recency thing, aside from Christian Michael in 2013. That was easily the worst draft class that John Schneider has ever had. But in his defense, that might be the worst draft class that I have seen since I've been doing this job, too. They're just the first round guys just did not pan out aside from a handful of players. It just it was a really bad crop of players that just didn't pan out in the NFL. So I give him a little leniency on that. Some of these other draft classes where he had some misses, though, there were some pretty good players that he had an opportunity that he could have drafted. And 
the players he picked instead didn't work out. Let's shift to our current draft discussion. Now, we mentioned this yesterday, Robin. You and I spent a ton of time watching film, and edge rushing groups, there's always going to be a lot of guys to talk about, and there was way more than we could fit into one segment yesterday. So what we decided to do, we decided to split it up between your twitchy, athletic, outside stand-up type guys and your bigger-bodied, traditional-built defensive ends, hybrid defensive tackles that are considered edge rushers. And there's actually quite a few guys that check that box off in this draft class. And I know there's one that you've talked about on the show a lot, dating back to really whenever we first started talking draft stuff, right after the wildcard loss in San Francisco, Lucas Van Ness has been a name that's quickly been off your tongue. And you told me before the show that you believe he is the number one of these bigger-bodied defensive ends in this draft class yeah i'm just really intrigued by him i mean this is a we've talked about about him so many times before as you mentioned corbin i mean this is a guy who has never started a single college game but i think people read that or think that and just kind of you know buy into it this is an old school head coach and kirk ferentz at iowa corbin you and i've talked about this and and just lavish praise in kirk ferentz because there are very few head coaches out there who have his track record of producing nfl prospects but at the same time part of that reason is because he holds his underclassmen down and you've got to earn that starting job but when i watch lucas van ness on tape i mean i just see a dominant potentially dominant player a guy who's just scratching the surface is way he's going to be I'll, I'll put it this way i had a conversation yesterday with a general manager and this general manager when i said hey i'm going to give you a comparison for lucas van ness and you're going to hate it but i use the comparison to the 49ers and previously cincinnati Bengals. very very good player guy i think it should be in uh, in the hall of fame conversation justin smith and he came back and said well i think he could be jj watt I mean, my goodness, Lucas Van Ness. I mean, again, th- this is the player that you start having the conversation like, why wouldn't you consider this guy at five if you feel that way? And again, I don't want to misconstrue things. That this is the, the the gentleman I was talking to yesterday is not connected to the Seahawks. He is not the general. He's not John Schneider. But still, <laughs> the the point is, is that this is a player that a lot of people are very excited about, and I, I do think they absolutely would be in play. Besides the other players that we've talked about so much, the Jalen Carter's, Tyree Wilson's, Will Anderson's. Uh, Lucas Van Ness, I think, is a real player. And if somehow, maybe not five, maybe a small trade down, maybe a small trade up from twenty. Lucas Van Ness, I think, is going to be a player, and I think that he'd make a lot of sense for the Seahawks. I want to talk about a player that, you know, I got to go back and listen to our shows. I don't know that Tuli Tui Pelotu from USC, I don't know that he's a player that we've really talked about much at all. And I think one of the big reasons we haven't, and I'm just going to mention this right now, I don't know if he is a good fit for what the Seahawks are wanting to do right now. He's a 265-pound defender that can play inside, but I think in the NFL, in a 3-4, he's not that style of a player. But, boy, when you turn on the film and, and the productivity there, too, 22 tackles for loss last season alone, 13 and a half sacks. He plays with his hair on fire. He's one of those high-energy guys that just – play after play he just keeps bringing the punches and I love the way that he plays the game and again you look at the productivity maybe not the most explosive athlete that you're going to find in this position group but he compensates for it with the energy the aggressiveness the instincts that he plays with if we were talking about the Seahawks two or three years ago with the defense they were running 
I would be maybe having a discussion about trading down a few picks and picking him. That's how much I like this kid. But I don't know at his size that he fits with the Seahawks are wanting to do right now because I don't view him as a 3-4 outside linebacker either. I think he is a base defensive end in a 4-3 in pass rushing situations. You might be able to do what the Seahawks do with Michael Bennett and reduce him inside a little bit. Not exactly the same style player, but he can do that, and he's extremely disruptive. And so I want to mention him because I do think the Seahawks value the productivity and the high-energy guys, and this guy checks off those boxes, and he also has good character as well. And he's 20 years old. Uh, he's, got <laughs> he's a NFL, puppy, yep. Yeah, he's got NFL bloodlines. I mean, his older brother, Marlon Tuipulotu, was a, a draft pick in the NFL. Uh, he's got cousins. Uh, Philly Moala was USC, was an Indianapolis Colts pick. Um, Tafana, who, uh, I'm sorry, Talona Hufanga, the safety for the 49ers, is another one of his cousins. I mean, so the productivity, the uh, you know, the NFL bloodlines, the age, the, the positional versatility, there's a lot of things to like about Tuli Tuli Pelotu. Um, Morris Trophy award winner so obviously that says a lot about the fact that pac 12 offensive linemen those are the only ones who can vote on the best defensive linemen in the conference and they're the ones who gave him that 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 victory this year and it was a landslide vote i can tell you that so uh, again i mean he is very highly respected um from pac 12 offensive linemen to me that's the biggest sign of respect so i do think that he could be somebody who's in play for the seahawks corbin i i got myself rambling in yesterday's show uh, about some of the defensive edge rushers in this class some of the the twitchy guys so i, I want to make sure that i kind of give some fair due to a couple of defensive ends that i think Make, make some sense for the Seahawks on, on day two, the second and third rounds. And and that being Zach Harrison and Isaiah McGuire from Missouri. They, they are different players. Harrison signed with Ohio State as, you know, maybe the, the most uh, highly touted prospect in the entire country. I mean, this guy has incredibly long arms, 36-inch arms. Uh, you know, he, he's 6'5", he's 270 pounds. And, and you, you see flashes of power. You see flashes of burst with him. He never became the player at Ohio State that some people expected because he was just so highly regarded. But I'll tell you what, when I watched Ohio State against Georgia, I watched him against Michigan, the really kind of, you know, rock him, sock him, punch him kind of games. I thought Harrison played pretty well in those games. And so to me, he has that physicality. He certainly has the athletic upside that I think that the Seahawks might be intrigued by. And then speak of rock him, sock him and, and kind of underrated McGuire from Missouri. He's not a guy that we talked about with Tui Pelotu. doesn't have that twitch. doesn't have that, that, that highlight reel that gets you all excited. But the more tape you watch with him, the more you start to like him. He's physical at the point of attack. He plays the run. He's got strength. And this is a really productive tackle for loss guy. Um, I, I like his instincts. I like his uh, – he does have some burst to him. So, to me, Isaiah McGuire, uh, McGuire from Missouri, and then, again, Harrison from Ohio State. If you don't go with one of those edge rushers at number five or number 20, I think these are really, really nice con – I, I even hesitate to use the word consolation. I think they're really nice players that you might be able to get future NFL starters. You might be able to get on day two. And I think those two, you look at them, they're really 180 degrees apart because I thought McGuire was a pretty darn productive player in the SEC and Harrison yep. for having all those tools just underperformed. And there were some injuries sprinkled in there. He had to wait his turn behind Chase Young when he first got there too. So there's been some factors aside from him not playing as well as expected. He never became the guy. 
they thought he was going to be at Ohio State. McGuire, I think, exceeded expectations yes. at Missouri, and he's got that blue-collar attitude. I haven't seen that from Harrison. Now, he could be one of those guys, an NFL coach gets a hold of him, he becomes a superstar because he's got that kind of tool, uh, that kind of toolbox. He's that toolsy. So I can see him being a day two pick. I have him as an early day three guy. McGuire is my day two guy because I see a really solid run defender and a blue collar, hard nosed guy that really can do a little bit of everything. And so two really exciting players. Speaking of blue collar, let's talk about Keon White, because this kid had a really interesting journey to being a potential first round pick. I don't have that grade on him, but there's a lot of people talking about late first round with Keon White because he's 285 pounds, but he can play as a stand up outside linebacker and he can do it well in flashes. And that's the thing that I want to stress here. This is why I don't have a first round grade on him. Also, the fact he's 25 years old. He's one of those older prospects. I don't know how much better he's going to be able to get at the NFL level, though a lot of his issues right now are technical and they can be sorted out with good coaching. I just don't see the consistency from him, though. There's the plays that tantalize you, and those are the ones that are probably going to get him picked early because there's going to be coaches thinking, if I'm I'm the guy, I can get more of that out of him with the burst. You just don't see guys at 285 pounds that can play as an outside linebacker like that and do it effectively. And he's got the athletic background to be able to drop back in coverage and stuff. There's a lot to love about him. I just don't see the consistency for me to pick him earlier than mid-second round. But he's certainly got his size would make sense in a 3-4 or a 4-3. He's got some scheme flexibility to him. And one of my sleepers in this draft class, I didn't know a lot about him. I was watching Derek Hall, who we talked about yesterday. He's a 250-pound dynamite edge rusher that plays super physical football. But I couldn't keep my eyes off of the interior in most of the games I was watching. I'm like, who is this kid? And his name is Colby Wooden. And this is one of those guys that I look at and he, I think he screams three-tech in a 3-4 three, defense for the Seattle Seahawks. He's 285 pounds. I don't think he's quite big enough to be a guy that can give you snaps at nose, but he's got more than enough size and athleticism to play three-tech. And every year the last three years, his sack numbers have slowly ticked up. I love players like that because that tells me, hey, this kid has steadily improved the last couple of years. I like players like that that don't have missing seasons, so to speak. This guy every year got better, and he's been a team captain. He's been a guy that I think should have been an all-SEC player but kind of got overshadowed because there's so much talent in interior defensive line in the SEC. I like him in day three because of his pass rushing production, and he's an underrated run defender. The key, he's got to play with better leverage. He plays too upright a lot of the time, but that can be coached out of him. I love the energy, and I love the pass rushing potential in a 3-4 defense. Yeah, no, I I, I think you just uh, highlighted two players that I'm, I'm very high on as well. Um, with Wooden, I mean, you're, you're talking about a guy that, you know, I, I talked before about Alabama's version of him and Byron Young. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, again, we're talking about day three players that have all of the the intangibles as well as a lot of the traits to be successful. So, you know, and another, again, a couple of players that, that I'm pretty excited about also. As, as far as the day three guys, Corbin, I, I screwed up in, in yesterday's show. I, I meant to mention Yaya Diaby from, from Louisville, um, and I, I did not. So I'm going to just gonna kind of steal uh, a moment here to kind of talk about him. At a 6'3", 265 pounds, he is not really the big body guy. Um, but at the same time, you talk about blue-collar work ethic. I mean, this guy out of high school, because he was 6'2", 210 pounds, wasn't getting recruited. Um, you know, he wound up having a year where he worked at the airport. 
I mean, so he knows blue collar work ethic, but at the same time, he, he went the Juco route, become a, a pretty accomplished pass rusher, and then signed with Louisville and exploded this past season. At 6'3", 265 pounds, I mean, he is, um, he, he is a guy that does have some power to him, but then he ran a 4.5 in the 40-yard dash. The combine, a 37-inch vertical jump, really showed some explosiveness. And again, a guy that went from basically two sacks a couple of years ago to nine sacks this past season, I just see, I see hunger. I see some explosiveness to him. And so, again, if we're talking about guys on day three that kind of scream Seahawk in some ways, I think that Yaya Diaby is among the Louisville players, frankly, who who kind of fit in with uh, the Seahawks. And, and then I would also mention Mike Morris from Michigan. Again, blue-collar kind of a guy. I mean, I didn't see very many players in the, in the Big Ten um, – that that played with more just physicality, toughness, grit than, than Mike Morris. Uh, he was the the Big Ten's defensive lineman of the year, so he certainly is a celebrated player. But he's not a twitchy athlete. Six five, two hundred eighty five pounds. He, he's not a super powerful guy that's going to be able to slide inside. He plays a little bit upright. And so I don't see him as being a defensive tackle. I think he can hold up outside as a run defender, uh, you know. But he's not going to be a, a, a twitchy pass rusher um and, and so because of that i think he's going to be available on day three but i think he's an awful good football player i think he's a tough guy and i think that he's a guy that's going to wind up making his mark in the nfl not necessarily as a starter but kind of a rotational player and so again to me just grit physicality sheer want to and desire that's what you're looking for as far as defensive linemen on day three they're going to wind up basically overcoming the odds because if you're selected on day three as a defensive lineman you're not really expected to make a club these are some of the guys i think that have the heart to do that speaking of grit let's talk about moro ojimo from sure. texas now you watch the Alabama-Texas game this past season. Texas had so many opportunities to pull the upset, and the defense was the big reason why. They had the Crimson Tide under 20 points for pretty much the entire game, and a big reason why was the presence of Ojimo, a guy that can play three-tech. He could slide out as a big end. He's 285, 290-pound range, kind of shorter arms, so he's not Puna Ford 2.0. This is not a guy that has – abnormally long arms, but he will thump guys across the line of scrimmage. He has the ability to penetrate gritty, hard nosed guy. Again, the blue collar style player can get after it a little bit as a pass rusher. I worry a little bit about him. I, I look at him compared to say Colby Wooden, who I just talked about and the body composition. I'm not necessarily sure that he holds up quite as well as a three tech. Is there enough sand in his pants? so to speak, but he's got the upper, upper body strength to be able to hold his own in the trenches. He's got a little bit of positional versatility, can play in that 3-4, three, 4-3 four, four, three scheme. And so I think on midday three, after watching what he did against Alabama, maybe he's gone a little earlier than that. But I just wonder if there's enough athletic limitations there and some questions about his body composition that maybe he falls a little bit. But he's a really good football player that had good production at Texas. And so I think in day three, he's a guy that makes a lot of sense for what the Seahawks like to do. And one other name I want to throw out there from Oklahoma State, Tyler Lacey. If you haven't watched Oklahoma State, this is a guy that will intrigue you a little bit. Another player that's a bigger body, 275, 280 pound, three tech can play a little bit outside too. He doesn't have the brute strength and the physicality that I was hoping to see. That was something that disappointed me. If I saw more from that aspect, I'd have him higher on my draft board. At the same time, for a 280 pounder, 
He has some unique ways to get into the backfield. He's got a little bit of slipperiness. He's good with his hand usage to get off of blocks. And there's been some reasonable pass rushing production. Not a guy that's going to get you a ton of sacks from the interior, but he has been able to contribute in that capacity. And it just feels like if you can get that physicality ticked up just a little bit with the other tools that he's got, that this could be a mid to late day three guy that has the value to maybe eventually start some games in the league he's one of those kind of guys and the other thing I like is he started a lot of games in the big 12 and so if you can get that kind of value mid to late day three it would make a lot of sense for the Seahawks to bring in somebody like that that I think is a quality scheme fit for what they're doing with their interior defensive line as well as their guys on the outside they're looking for that versatility as always you can follow me on twitter at corbin smith nfl you can follow rob at rob rang subscribe and follow locked on seahawks on youtube and other major podcast platforms to make sure you don't miss a single episode coming up on tomorrow's show we are going to be taking a close look at many of the comments from john schneider and pete carroll today in their pre-draft press conference tons of interesting information including the potential of a trade down the difficulties with trying to project this upcoming draft and much more you won't want to miss it thanks for listening to this show go hawks